0: All right, go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. And we will be looking together this morning at verses 30 to 35 of Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, verses 30 to 35. And if you are able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word this morning, starting in Matthew chapter 26, verse 30. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. At this moment, Peter is a man brimming with self-confidence. The great 16th century Protestant reformer, John Calvin... In his magisterial work, widely considered to be the first systematic theology ever written, the Institutes of the Christian Religion, he begins this magisterial work with these words. Our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts. The knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. And in this Calvin is absolutely right. If we are to be what the Bible calls wise as opposed to foolish, then we must accurately understand and continue seeking to know God and who He is in His exalted holiness, His perfection, His glory, and we must also at the same time be truthful and correct and accurate about who and what we are. what our faults are, what our numerous weaknesses are, our sins and what they are, our state of being absolutely wretched. And even though it's true that real, solid, right wisdom consists in correctly understanding who God is and who, our, who we are, the world we live in, the culture we live in, is persistent in its efforts to have you remain foolish, to have me remain foolish. The culture we live in is consistently and persistently seeking to confuse you about these two realities, who God is and who you are. Our culture labors to have us elevate ourselves to God's level, not in fact because that can never happen, but in our minds. And if we're not careful, and if you look out even at the Christian world, the professing Christian world, you will see people applying the concepts that belong only to God to ourselves. Lowering God to our level as though He is not, as though He were not, the divine, sovereign, all-powerful ruler of all. And that foolishness has even made headway, like I said, into much of the professing Christian world as phrases and concepts like this believe in yourself, have confidence in yourself, trust in yourself, have become common pieces of advice, even amongst those who would say, I love Jesus, I follow Jesus. The other day, as I was watching the season finale of, and don't, please don't judge me. I was watching the season finale of Survivor. Yes, that show, A, is still on TV, and B, yes, I still watch it. The cast members of the show kept saying things like this. What I've learned in my experience here is that I have to believe in myself. I have to have confidence in myself. And if you're listening, when your ears are attuned to these phrases, you will begin to hear them everywhere. You will hear them from the politicians. You will hear them from motivational speakers. You will hear them from your friends. And you will even hear them from many so called pastors. Because nothing makes a person more popular than telling or than appealing to human pride. We all like people who tell us that we are smart and that we are self-sufficient and that when they look at us, their, their immediate thing to say is, you should be more confident in yourself. What are they saying? You're great. That type of conversation will win you friends and influence people. But you know what doesn't win you friends? is speaking biblical truth about how weak we are. These types of things will issue in hatred. And listen, you and I are not immune to the effects. When we keep hearing something over and over and over again, when the society we live in continues to push its ideas on you and on me, when a culture that idolizes and elevates the individual self advertises and pers- consi- consistently beats the drum for self-confidence, for a level of self-overconfidence that ought to make the follower of Jesus blush, it can and probably has for some of you become a part of your vocabulary, either because we don't want to be disliked by the culture we live in or Because the societal garbage that has dumped itself on the lawns of our minds has actually began to change the way we think. I mean, don't put your hands up here, but just think, have you at any point suggested to someone who has come to you for advice, you know what you really need to do? You need to trust in yourself. You need to follow what your heart is telling you. What is your heart telling you? You need to have more confidence in yourself. You need to believe in yourself. Has that come from your mouth to somebody? Don't let me see you shaking or whatever, your head. It's a common statement. It's a common phrase. It's a common cultural catch word. And so what does it mean to believe in yourself? Well, one university website I looked at defines it like this, quote, It means being able to trust yourself to do what you say you'll do and knowing that those efforts will result in the desired outcomes, end quote. When we look at Peter's story in our text this morning and moving forward, how did that work out for him? Others who peddle their books, you know that self-help and believing in yourself and self-confidence, that's the biggest section in your bookstore, right? those books will write such fluffy statements as this, quote, Believe in yourself. You are braver than you think. You are more talented than you know. You are capable of more than you could ever imagine. End quote. And, this one's even worse, Believe in your infinite potential. Do you see the statement of deity there? Believe in your infinite potential. Your only limitations are those that you set upon yourself, end quote. And as I was reading that, I think to myself, it's actually wise for me, right? It's wise for us that we limit ourselves to not jumping off mountains. The only limitation I place on myself is that I don't jump off a mountain because I recognize there is a deficiency in me that I can't make up for Should I jump off a mountain? Does anyone know what that deficiency is? I can't fly. That's right. You got it. But popular speakers and self-help types, they make millions and millions of dollars writing books packed with this message repeated over and over again in different ways. They host weekend seminars where people go and they chant to themselves both at these retreats and in daily affirmations, believe in yourself, there's nothing I can't do. You ever notice that oftentimes these same self-help authors and instructors can barely keep their own lives together as they tell their readers how to live a more fulfilled life, a life of self-belief and self-love and self-confidence. Let me just say this. For you and I to place our trust and our confidence in ourselves for John Calvin is the absolute pinnacle of stupidity and foolishness. But it doesn't really matter what John Calvin says, does it? If he isn't presenting a biblical truth. So let's take a minute to consider what the Bible's witness is on this subject. I want you to compare the cultural word, the cultural moment... To believe in yourself and to have confidence in yourself with, for example, the Apostle Paul's assessment. Christ's appointed apostle to the Gentiles, the man who penned many of the letters in the New Testament, would say things like this. I do not understand my own actions. And listen, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Listen to this. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Culture would say, believe in yourself and you can deliver. You can be delivered. But what does Paul say? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Hear Paul again in 1 Timothy 1. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Meaning, hear and accept the truth that Paul is about to speak. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Or, I am the chief. But I received mercy for this reason. That as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. See, for Paul, it's not about him. He recognizes who he is. I am a sinner. I am not just a sinner. I am the foremost sinner. I'm the chief of all sinners. It's all about Jesus. And I put my faith in him. He has given me mercy. He has set me on this foundation of being able to go and preach the gospel to the gentiles it was nothing in me i could have believed in myself all i wanted and i would still be nothing and he concludes this section saying to the king of the ages immortal invisible the only god to him be glory and honor forever and ever and again here paul write these words to the corinthian believers after suffering through some physical pain and asking the lord petitioning the lord to take that pain away he writes but the lord said to me my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness and here's what paul says here's how he responds to the word of the lord to him therefore i will boast all the more gladly of my what self-confidence I will boast all the more gladly of how much trust I have in myself. Is that what Paul's going to say? No, listen to it. I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And why is Paul strong? Because God is great and God is with him, and that's all he needs. The Apostle Paul is so abundantly clear there is nothing in himself to trust in. It's all in Christ. To trust in ourselves, to believe in ourselves, to put confidence in ourselves, like Peter did on this night, is to believe the exact opposite of what the gospel teaches it's the anti gospel to tell people you're good, all you need to do is believe in yourself when Scripture says the exact opposite. When Scripture says, no, trust Jesus, turn to Jesus, is to change the gospel into a mere self-help program. Just a little Jesus on top of you who's already good enough to have confidence in yourself. But the truth is, if you read the Scriptures, you know You are a hopeless sinner without Jesus. I am a hopeless sinner without Jesus. And apart from Christ, not one of us is righteous. Not one of us is good. All of us have turned aside. And then what does the text tell us? But God shows his love for you in this, that while you were a sinner, Christ died for you. Christ died for you to save you because no matter how much confidence you put in yourself, you can't save yourself. Apart from Christ, we are all liars. We are all adulterers, thieves, idolaters, sexually perverse, gossips, slanderers, maligners. Without Christ, that's where we are. So if there were something in us that we could indeed trust in or believe in, then why did Christ come to die for us? Why did Christ take on flesh to seek and to save the lost? Why did Christ have to go to the cross? What did he bear in our place if we're so good? Did he take upon himself our goodness? No. Did he come to earth, look around and see, you know what, these people really don't need me. All they need to do is trust in themselves. I don't need to become the object of their faith, the object of their trust. Is that what Jesus saw as he looked around? All they need to do is love themselves, accept themselves, and believe in themselves. Did Jesus see that and say, well, my work is done here? No, and as we'll see next week, Jesus cried out in anguish in the garden of Gethsemane. He cried out, is there any other way? Must I bear the sins of humanity on myself? Must I, who knows no sin, become sin on their behalf? Is there any other way? But there wasn't. Because we are far worse off than we think. We're far weaker than we believe. On our own, we can do nothing. And in us, there is nothing good to grasp onto that we can believe in. Apart from Christ, apart from the Holy Spirit in us transforming us into Christ's image, we are nothing. And Peter is a great example of this. Because Peter on this night believed in himself. Peter on this night possessed a highly inflated sense of confidence in himself and yet completely failed to live up to it. Peter displays in this event what is true of every single one of us apart from outside of the saving work of Jesus Christ in our souls. All of us apart from the Spirit of God in us Apart from the Spirit causing us to be born again, changing us, strengthening us, pointing us to the truth of Christ, pointing us to the will of Christ, the command of Christ, and then empowering us to be able to conform, be conformed to the image of Christ, without the Spirit, without that Spirit in us, there is nothing good in us to believe in. You don't need self-confidence. I know that's a If you're thinking about the way culture speaks, that's a a violation of one of culture's big ideas. Scripture repeatedly states this. Many of you have as your favorite verse Proverbs 3, verses 5, 6, and 7. And what does that tell us? Do not lean on your own understanding. Did you hear that? Do not lean on your own understanding. Or in verse 7, be not wise in your own eyes. Or, how about a little clearer in Proverbs twenty-eight twenty-six: Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. Or as David noted in Psalm 108, Vain is the salvation of man. Or as the Lord spoke to us through the prophet Jeremiah, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. And it's in the tones of rebuke that Jesus told the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18. You remember that. The Pharisee went and said, I'm so thankful that I am not like this guy. And the tax collector didn't even look up and just beat his chest and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. One of them trusted in themselves. One of them did not. Luke actually specifically says, Jesus told that parable to those who trusted in themselves. Instead of so foolish a practice as trusting in or believing in or having confidence in ourselves, listen to the repeated refrain of the Lord in His word. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. And again, Proverbs 28, 25. Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but... He who walks in wisdom will be delivered. And Proverbs 29, 25. Whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. And in Psalm 18, one of my personal favorites, here we see King David after being delivered out of the hands of those who sought to harm him. He wrote a psalm, but he didn't write a psalm extolling his own power his own faith in himself, the trust that he had in himself, the confidence that he had in himself to get out from under the harm that was coming against him, to overcome those who had arrayed themselves against him. No, in true wisdom, listen to what David wrote in Psalm 18, verses 1 to 3. I love you, O Lord. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, My God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. Who's David trusting in there? David here called the Lord his rock, meaning the picture of stability, of one who is never broken, never moved, upon whom you can build your life. The Lord is for David his fortress, a picture of defense. The Lord is for David like the walls of an impenetrable castle, and David runs into it, and he is safe. The Lord is David's deliverer, the one who brings him through all of his trials and all of his hardships. David says the Lord is his shield, another picture of defense. The Lord is his horn of salvation, a twofold picture. First, it it speaks to the Lord's being David's asylum, and also being the horn that one would lift up and blow to call for assistance in the battle. Who does David trust in? Who does David believe in? To whom does David turn for confidence and help in his time of need? Himself? No, the one that every single one of us should be turning to every minute of every day of our lives, the Lord. Here David continue in Psalm 18. This God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in Him. For who is God but the Lord and who is a rock except our God? The God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation. Your right hand supported me. Your gentleness made me great. Who does David trust? It's not hard to see, is it? And the same is true for Israel after being released from their enslavement in Egypt, after being liberated from the powerful, oppressive hand of Pharaoh, they began singing songs in the wilderness. And to whom did they sing those songs? To themselves? Did they hold up the monument to their own ability to save themselves or to have confidence in themselves? No, they sang this song in Exodus 15, I will sing to the Lord. For he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider, he has thrown into the sea. And he has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him and I will exalt him. Let's keep going. The Apostle Paul, when writing to the Philippian church, and speaking to them about his ability to remain content no matter what the circumstance, didn't say, I believe in myself. I believe in myself that I can can overcome any and all circumstances. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound because I have confidence in me. No, that would have been foolish. Listen instead to what Paul wrote in Philippians 4, 12, and 13. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And listen, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Who does Paul trust in? And as Paul wrote to the Corinthians, helping them understand why it is that they must endure the trials that they are enduring, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9, he said this, We felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And in the life of Israel, once again, very early on, as they were about to enter into the promised land, the Lord warned them, before they got into the land, about this very temptation to self-confidence. In Deuteronomy 8, verse 11, he says, Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God. And he continues, Beware, lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the power to get wealth, that He may confirm His covenant that He swore to your fathers, as it is this day. Oh, how easy it is, right? To forget that our complete and our total dependence ought to be on the Lord how easy it is for us to transfer that confidence and that trust, the trust and confidence that ought rightly to be placed in Him and in Him alone, to ourselves. To say, to believe the exact thing the Lord warned Israel against believing, my power, the might of my hand, the wisdom of my mind, are what I need to trust in. We would all do well to remember Jesus' words to the disciples on this very night when he said to them in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do what? Nothing. So the Word of God is actually quite clear about who we are to believe in, who we are to be confident in, who we are to trust in, and let me say this, it is not ourselves. But that does not keep people from trying to present and twist the Scriptures in such self-serving ways. I looked up self-confidence in the Bible online to just see what people were saying and there were a number of terrible 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 violations of scripture. One website for example boasted 47 verses about believing in yourself. And I clicked on it and the very first verse was plastered at the top of the page and it was this. Mark 9:23. All things are possible for one who believes. Believes in who? What do you think they're trying to tell you there? Do you see the violation right there? All things are possible for the one who believes? Believes in himself? That's what they're trying to tell you. No, because in the very next verse, the man to whom Jesus said these words cried out, Jesus, help me! A long time ago there was a Shooting Star Evangelical pastor guy who created a series of videos and one of the videos covered Jesus telling Peter to walk on the water. And in that text in Matthew 14:31 as Peter walks on the water he sees the wind and he sees the waves and he sinks. And Jesus said this to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And guess who this person applies that phrase to? Why did you doubt who? Why did you doubt yourself? That's not at all what's happening there. And then this morning... Just for some reason, I thought, I'm going to type it into YouTube and listen to preachers preach this. And one preacher, don't do it. It's like, wash, don't, it's like washing your eyeballs with soap. It's awful. This pastor said, the Israelites were barred from the land when they brought back the negative report because they lacked faith in themselves to go and take the land over. They saw how difficult the fight was going to be. They saw that the people there were giants and they were big, and so they said, we can't do it. And they lacked faith in themselves, and for that reason, God put them all to death. Again simply not true. The Lord had repeatedly told them, I will go with you. I will be the one who is fighting for you. I, you sit still and watch as I win the victory for you. It was not their faith in themselves that was shaken. It was their faith in God's good protection. These are the types of things that you are being taught by the famous internet preachers around the world. It is a violation of the Word of God. All things are not possible for those who believe in themselves. It's not a self help verse. And as we come to the events that take place just before Jesus is actually betrayed into the hands of sinners, in both Christ's foretelling what their response would be, the disciples' response would be to the upcoming events. And as Christ prays in the Garden of Gethsemane while his disciples, the disciples, if you remember, he asks to remain watchful and prayerful, but they can't, they fall asleep instead because they have no power in themselves. It is evident that confidence in ourselves is, biblically speaking, a misplaced confidence. It is the height of foolishness and it is a hindrance to your faith. So as we see in Matthew 26, after the conclusion of the Passover celebration and the institution of the Lord's Supper as a memorial for the disciples in Matthew 26, 26 to 29, they left the upper room and in verse 30 we read, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And so as Jesus and the eleven disciples approached or dwelt on the Mount of Olives, Matthew records that Jesus said to the the 11 disciples in verse 31, you will all fall away from me or because of me this night. If you go to Luke, you'll see that there is another detail in this conversation that must have come before this pronouncement. As Jesus said, Simon, Simon in Luke 22, 31 and 32. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. That he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Yet another insight for us into our helplessness apart from the powerful, upholding hand of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus looked at Peter and said, Take note of this, Simon. Satan has demanded to have you, and the you here is a plural you. Satan has demanded to have all 11 of you. Not just Judas, but all of you. He has appeared before the throne of God to ask that he might sift you like wheat, like he did to Job, like he did in Zechariah chapter 3 with the high priest Joshua. He wants to shake you, He wants to put you through a violent, raging test for the purpose of eradicating your faith and then tossing you away like chaff. This is what Satan has demanded be done with all 11 of you. And while I have indeed handed Judas over to him, I have prayed for you, Peter. I have prayed that your faith would not fully and finally fail, even though all of you will deny me on this night. Even though all of you will abandon me on this night and flee from me, even though all of you will descend and plummet to the depths of betrayal, I can and I will restore you. For all of you, eleven, your faith will not fail. Peter, your faith will not fail. I will keep you. Satan will not be able to destroy your faith ultimately. Even though he has been given the green light to test you on this night, I will keep you. He prayed something like this in John 17, in the high priestly prayer, which he prayed on this night, when he said, Holy Father, keep them, the eleven, in your name, which you have given me. While I was with them, I kept them in your name which you have given me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus prays for his disciples that their faith will not ultimately fail. While Satan does indeed hope to destroy you, And listen, the same is true for you here this morning. Do not think for one second that Satan is not, even right now at this very minute, demanding to sift every single one of us. And no amount of self-confidence will help you in this fight. No amount of self-belief will save you from the treachery of Satan. But for Peter and the disciples on this night, what will be revealed to them is their human frailty, their weakness. Jesus is about to let them see that placing such confidence in themselves is an absolute mistake because your confidence must be fully and completely placed in him. For every single one of us, there is a spiritual war raging all around you. A war that you cannot see, a war that without Christ you cannot win. The Apostle Paul wrote about it to the Ephesian church when he said, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, not your own, in his. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Put on his armor. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the forces of evil in the heavenly places. But Peter hadn't figured this out yet. Whereas Paul, later on, knew to exhort believers, be strong in the Lord, be strong in the Lord's might, put on, don the armor of God as the covering for your human weakness, Jesus had to spell it out for Peter. In essence here telling him, you have no idea, Peter, what is lined up against you. You have no clue who it is that is seeking your demise, Peter. You have no idea who is speaking your name before the Lord and asking to sift you, to eradicate your faith, and to toss you in the garbage heap. You have no idea, Peter. It is Satan himself. He is insisting that you be handed over to him. And he knows your weakness, and he hopes to completely demolish your faith. And Peter, if it was left to you, your faith would fail, as you will soon see, Peter. But unlike Judas, I've got you. I will see to your recovery. I will see to your return. By my intercession for you, you will prevail ultimately in my strength. Yes, you will fail on this night, but when you are restored, when you have returned to me because I have prayed for you, use this newfound recognition of your own weakness, this newfound understanding of my power to uphold you, of my carrying you and maintaining you, of my never letting you, my child Peter, go to encourage others with these things. Encourage other disciples not by pointing to their own strength, not by saying to them, be confident in yourself, trust in your own heart. Peter, don't go and say stuff like that to them. Point them to the glorious power and strength of Christ the Lord. Strengthen your fellow disciples. And it's interesting because Jesus had just these words come right on the heels of the disciples arguing. In the verse just before Luke twenty-two thirty-three, 33, um, in that little section before, we read this, a dispute arose among them as to which was to be regarded as the greatest. This was what was happening among the disciples immediately preceding Christ's announcement of their falling away. You guys think you're so great. That is all about to be demolished in a matter of hours. This is where self-confidence leads to all of you sitting around the table arguing about who's greater than the other. Peter, when you learn this lesson, instead of trying to assert yourself over the rest of your brothers as though you are greater than them, instead of fighting over who is the most important among you like you've just done, Let this failing of this test be for you a humbling that causes you to fully depend on me. To trust in me, to put your hope and your confidence in me, and to teach others to do the same. For that reason, Jesus continued in Matthew, you will all fall away because of me this night all 11 of you will be scandalized as a result of what is about to happen to me this night. You will all be appalled, tripped up at, filled with offense at, embarrassed by, and disgusted by what you are about to see take place. And as a result, you will all flee. You will all abandon me on this night. None of you will want to be associated with me, and you will all become untrue to me on this night. A great obstacle is about to be placed before you and it will temporarily halt your devotion. And all of you are going to turn away. You are all going to forsake me on this night. And the words of Jesus would come to pass in just a few short hours. If you flip to Matthew 26, 56, you read it. All the disciples left him and fled after he was betrayed, after he was arrested, even though Jesus had continually reiterated these events would take place. He said it before they entered Jerusalem a week earlier. In Matthew 20, 18 and 19, he told them flat out, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised up on the third day. And yet, even though Jesus made this clear to them, When it actually took place, when it came to pass, as Jesus said it would, they all fled. But this didn't catch Jesus off guard. It didn't catch Jesus unprepared. Why? Because he knew. Jesus knows the weakness of our flesh. And the falling away, and the falling away of the disciples actually also fulfilled the word of the Lord that had been spoken through the prophet Zechariah. You see it in verse 31. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. This shepherd struck is the same as he who was spoken of in just the chapter before in Zechariah 12.10, the same one they will look upon, the one whom they have pierced. The idea being, there is coming a day when the Lord's appointed leader, the one that he sends, the shepherd to Israel, will be cut off. He will be struck, and as a result, his sheep will be scattered. His followers will be scattered. In its original context, the sheep here refers to the nation of Israel, but here Jesus applies it to the scattering of the 11 who are with him on this night. Jesus will be arrested, Jesus will be executed, and his disciples will scatter. In Zechariah, the prophecy actually reads like this: Zechariah 13:7: "Awake, O sword." "'Against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me,' declares the Lord of hosts. "'Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered.'" And when Jesus quotes this text, notice that he shorthands it. Instead of, "'Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, "'strike the shepherd,' Jesus shorthands it too. "'I will strike the shepherd.'" Meaning, all that Jesus is about to endure will be brought on him by his own Father. It is the sword of God that is awoken for this very purpose, to strike the shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. The I, in Christ's quote of Zechariah, is the Father. See, Jesus knows who is overseeing these events, and who it is that will be, that will ultimately crush him, and vent his holy wrath against him, or upon him. Other prophets have made this clear as well. Isaiah, speaking of the Messiah in chapter 53, said this, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him, Jesus, to grief. The sword of the Father was awakened. Awakened. The Father will strike down the Lord Jesus Christ. The Father will lay upon Him the iniquity of us all. The Father will crush Jesus. The Father will pour out His perfect holy wrath against the sin of all who believe upon Jesus, who takes it all and bears it all in our place. And this fact we will see next week brings Jesus to the point of death by anguish and distress when He prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. For now, though, Jesus continued saying to his disciples, But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Now for Judas, no such hope was offered. John tells us that at the Passover dinner, Judas took the morsel of bread, Satan entered into him, and then Jesus said to Judas, What you're going to do, do quickly, and Judas immediately went out. That's it. No words of comfort, no words of hope, but for the eleven, see the promise of verse 32. I promise I'm going to meet you in Galilee after I'm raised from the dead. Once again, Jesus, before it takes place, speaks about his resurrection and speaks about his powerful commitment to regathering the disciples together in Galilee, which indeed came to pass after Jesus was raised, after Mary came to the tomb and the angel said to her in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus is not here for he has risen as he said. Go quickly, tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. Now, how should the disciples, how should more specifically Peter, have responded to what Jesus just told him? What what should Peter ought to have said when Jesus said, you're all going to fall away from me this night? He should have recognized his weakness, right? Maybe saying something like, Lord, help me. I can't do this on my own. I am too weak. There is nothing good in me without you and your strength. If you are not with me, I am doomed to fail. Peter ought to have spoken with some level of humility, with some understanding of his weaknesses, but no, he immediately and confidently piped up in verse 33. Though they all fall away, because of you, I I will never fall away. There is no doubt in my mind, too, that Peter, in this moment, believed this. Talk about overconfidence. Talk about too much trust in your own abilities and power. You have Jesus telling Peter, this is what's about to happen, and then Peter immediately and publicly declaring his disagreement with Jesus, his disbelief in what Jesus has just said to him. See in this moment, this inflated sense of self-confidence. Peter is so optimistic about his own power to hold out no matter what might come that he even dismissed the words of Jesus himself. What you have just said, Jesus, is not accurate. I, Peter, will never fall away. Even if all of these fellows over here do, I will not. Simon the Zealot over there, he might go back to his insurrectionist ways, but not me. Matthew, he might rethink his allegiance to you and return to the tax booth in order to enrich the Romans and himself. I'm not gonna fall away like that. James and John, they might run home to Zebedee, their father, with their tails tucked between their legs in shame and jump back on the fishing boat, but not me. Even my own brother Andrew, he might fall away, He might get embarrassed by you. He might stop believing. But me? Uh Uh-uh. Peter heard Jesus, but he didn't want to. He could not accept what Jesus said. He could only believe what he thought to be true. What he wanted to be true. Which never ends well, by the way. Peter believed in himself. And no matter, what, that no matter what might happen, no matter how bad things might get, no matter how embarrassed or frightening things might get, he believed, I will never fall away. Peter, at this moment, like so much of the world today, simply didn't understand the weakness of his own heart. He had no idea about just how weak he actually is in himself, how powerless he was. And oh, how quickly his boasting would turn into denials. Peter's loud self-confidence is the precursor to a fall that is greater than all the other ten disciples. Peter believed in himself so much that even when the warnings of Christ himself were brought, Peter did not consider whether he could, it is possible that he could be wrong. And so Jesus responded by making it even more clear to Peter that his particular falling away will be even worse than that of the other ten, saying directly to Peter, I tell you, Peter, this very night before the rooster crows, you, you will deny me three times. Sense the tone here, right? Really, Peter? Really? You say that you'll never fall away? You have a pride of self that will, on this very night, be demolished. Because not only, Peter, will you fall away, but it's not going to be at some distant future point. It will be on this very night, before the rooster crows. Meaning in just a few hours, you, Peter, yes, You, Mr. Proud and Boastful, you will fall away by denying me. And not just once, Peter, not even twice, Peter, but three times. Three times you will refuse to acknowledge any relationship with me. You will refuse to recognize any connection to me. And you will publicly renounce even knowing me three times. And it's not going to be out of any sort of fear of death or fear of prison. But you will deny me because a servant girl, a couple of servant girls come and ask you questions about your knowledge and relationship to me. Peter, this is, this is how you will deny me. The weakest of society will come and question you and you will fold like a cheap suit. Now, for the second time, Jesus has told Peter what is about to happen, giving Peter another chance to fall on his knees in humility, another chance to cling to Jesus and ask him for help and aid in his weakness. If only Peter had known. But once again, he doesn't say anything of the sort, but instead he doubles down. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Mark tells us that Peter emphatically said this to Jesus. And it makes sense because Mark was a close companion of Peter, and Mark's gospel is in many ways the rec- Peter's record of the gospel. And so Peter, after these events, a man humbled and now completely dependent on the goodness and grace of Christ, he wants the reader to know how proud and how adamant he was in his more hard-headed days. He emphatically said these things, meaning to an excessive and extreme degree, he persisted in his proud self-confidence saying, even if I must die with you, even if it's an unavoidable circumstance that I must face death by your side. As Luke records it, Peter said, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. If need be, I will sit in the prison cell awaiting whatever sentence might come. Even if that sentence is death, I am ready. I will not deny you. I will never refuse to acknowledge you. And inspired by Peter's confidence, look at verse 35, all the rest. They all joined in and they said the same thing. While all of these men would indeed become brave, bold, loyal proclaimers of the gospel and all of them would pay for it with their lives, this level of commitment would only come after Pentecost, after the helper, the Holy Spirit, descended from heaven to indwell the sons and daughters of God. But prior to that, prior to the arrival of the Spirit, these 11 men talk a big game but lacked any power to act according to their boasts. For now, they'll assert their courage, and then they'll flee at the first sign of danger. And for Peter, it's all made so much worse when he'd done everything Jesus said he would. After denying Jesus the third time and doing it with such a force that he called down curses upon himself, denying that he even knew Jesus, Luke tells us that Jesus himself turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered everything that Jesus had told him. He went out, he broke down, and he wept bitterly. Peter's bravado and self-confidence were now gone, evaporated, dissipated, and he cried in great anguish over his failure and from the penetrating gaze of Christ the Lord who had heard every single word. How does one recover from that? You recover from it by realizing what Peter ended up learning, that his confidence should never have been in himself. Neither should we follow the world's advice to believe in yourself, to grow in your own self-confidence. But like Peter learned, so should we that all of our hope, all of our trust, all of our worth, all of our value, all of our strength ought to be in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the Lord Jesus Christ who redeems everyone who believes in Him, who restores to right relationship with God all who truly turn to Him in faith, who forgives the sin of anyone, no matter who you are, no matter how wicked you've been, provided you believe in His name. It's all about Him. In Jesus who establishes you is where our faith should lie. It is Jesus who guards you, Jesus who protects you, Jesus who intercedes for you, Jesus who strengthens you, Jesus who saves you, Jesus who indwells you, Jesus who secures for you an an inheritance with the saint. It is Jesus who transfers you from the domain of darkness into his marvelous light. None of these things can be secured or laid hold of by your hand or your power, but only by grace through faith in the only one who will never let you down the one in whom our confidence and our trust is wisely placed. And it's not you. It is our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Father, we thank you for what we learn from Peter's story. Lord, we know that in our flesh, one of the default things that we can give into is beginning to trust in our own hands, in our own strength, and Lord, as culture continually reiterates and repeats this refrain, to trust in ourselves, trust in ourselves, I pray that you, by your spirit, would help us to recognize that the more we look to ourselves, the more our eyes are off Jesus. So I pray that all of us, your children, by grace through faith in Christ, our eyes would not be looking at ourselves, not be looking at anything other than the glorious Messiah and Lord Jesus Christ. Let our hope be there. Let our trust be there. Let our confidence be there in Him. And it's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.